So today we're talking to Duan Figueroa-Rasol. Hi there, Duan, and welcome back to Yes Indeed Pod. Hey, hi. Thank you for inviting me. No problem. Uh, you are a ZineQuest returner and also a Yes Indeed Pod returner. It's very exciting to have you here Yeah. once more. Just to remind our listeners, would you like to introduce yourself and let us know what you do in the indie tabletop role-playing game scene? Sure. Well, my name is Duan. My name is Duan Figueroa-Rasol, actually. Uh, I'm an illustrator and game designer. I started up as an organizer in my local community here in Argentina. Um, I hosted events, uh, events, did blogs, podcasts, uh, art, and now I'm delving more into game design. My first published game was Deep Nally Fathoms for the last year's Sin Quest, and this year I'm trying to remake and expand an old project of mine, uh, which was published in Spanish way, way back then, called uh, Noctis Labyrinth, and well, that's pretty much my project for this year's Sin Quest. Fantastic. Well, would you like to give us a bit of an elevator pitch as to what Noctis Labyrinth is about? Bare Bones, Noctis Labyrinth is a compilation of three modules based on John Harper's World of Dungeons. The main uh, module is a zero-prep adventure. The idea is that you, as a GM, will be able to crack open the scene and just start running it without any kind of preparation at all, other than, you know, knowing what World of Dungeon is about. That's one of the main reasons why I chose that game, because it's very short and it's also free. The other modules, uh, one is for one hour, uh, one shots. Yeah. Uh, so when you have very short time to play, or if you're running at an event, you can use that one. Uh, and the last one is a dungeon crawler, which is, you know, a classic sit-down, longer play. The idea is that you're taking the players to explore a series of canyons uh, named Noctis Labyrinth in search for artifacts and glory, because you're adventurous. And um, it's a weird fantasy game. Excellent. The idea is to maybe avoid some of the classic trappings of fantasy gaming. Well, that sounds really cool and really awesome. I'm super pleased that you're using World of Dungeons rather than them the other osr stuff out there because i think uh, world of dungeons is one of the coolest games that john harper ever made i love it so yeah the design of it is so slick and the way that it was presented is just wonderful so yeah big 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 kudos there it's also a very solid foundation for a power by the apocalypse game yeah isn't it just it gave me the opportunity to use my knowledge in other power by the apocalypse games to build upon so, you know, you have right. World of Dungeons as a foundation, but you can make moves over that game and, and expand it and make it grow. It's a really cool game. Um, like, it does get said elsewhere, but John Harper, it must be one of the most influential game designers of the last decade. I mean, if you if you think about For sure. Lady Blackbird and World of Dungeons, Lasers and Feelings, uh, and of course, Blades in the Dark slash Forge in the Dark. I mean, wow. <laughs> What a CV. So, you know, you are really standing on the shoulders of giants here. Yeah. Do you want to tell us some of what weird fantasy means to you? Sure. What's your definition of weird fantasy? Well, it's weird. Uh, <laughs> my, my definition is really weird. <laughs> well, all right. What what does it look like to, to play Noctis Labyrinth? Of How course, does it feel? Uh, I don't know, because I don't know, I'm a big fan of uh, Jack Vance's Dying Earth. I'm a big fan of 
psychedelic comics like the ones made by Kike Alcatena, which is a, an Argentinian artist. I liked Peiwa uh, back then uh, when I was borrowed uh, a copy of Black Mark, which is a very obscure comic. And all those kind of, of cosmic uh, aesthetics uh, plus some amount yeah. of post-apocalyptic. Basically this idea that uh, fantasy should be something that amuses us and take us by surprise. So it's not like I'm... sure being a hundred percent original because nothing really is but the idea is to break away from expectations and um, to engage a group of players by breaking away from expectations taking into account the gm as well uh, yeah because, you know they will be the one bringing the, the scene right right it does allow people to build on their own ideas of what it is as well. I think it's interesting that you talk about post-apocalyptic fantasy because I think there are a lot of games at the moment that are kind of hitting that mood. And I just think it's fascinating to see how people's visions of what post-apocalyptic look like are so wildly different. Like sort of varying from Paul Sager's Traverser and games like Songs of the Dusk uh, going all the way to something like Merkberg or, you know, your classic kind of apocalypse worlds, I suppose, is the is the quintessential apocalypse RPGs. So. Yeah, but, you know, uh, there has been a, a, a very, very long conversation among OSR people that uh, D&D, you know, classic D&D, kind of assumes a post-apocalyptic setting, mainly for its influences. That's interesting, yeah. We have this uh, conversation about how maybe the fall of Rome, of the Roman Empire, was kind of a post-apocalypse, in a sense, for our classic Western Europe, right, uh, setting. Sure. So the post-apocalyptic aspect of wilderness and, and a small settlements of, of civilization, right, it's something that has been talked about, uh, and it's useful. It's a useful tool to engage in adventure. Doesn't mean that it's correct. Doesn't mean that it's accurate. Uh, it just means that uh, it's the way that we are used to play, and it's a it's a useful trope that we share as as players. It's a really useful lens to explore different themes, and I think that's that's very interesting and important as well to have a touchstone that people can that can people can pick up quickly for, like you said, a guided module or a very short one shot. So yeah, that's a really that's a really sharp, interesting set of ideas that you're presenting there. We've kind of hit a little bit on the themes there, but are there some kind of wider themes to what you're exploring here, or is it as simple as it's a dungeon crawler? It's actually very simple. It's not like Deep 90 Fathoms where I really delve into some of my own stuff. This is something that uses a lot of my experience running improvised games and trying to present adventures in a way that that would have been useful for me maybe 10 years ago. Cool. I'm really used to sit down and run for people that maybe are playing role-playing games for the first time because I run open tables at my local community for a long, long time. And I participated in events, you know, all that. And this is basically a compilation of all that experience uh, trying to distill it into a scene that will, you know, try to promote or, or engage the GM in those terms, uh, trying to give them tools to do that. Um, so it's very focused on presentation. Also, I think that it's uh, everything that, that I did for this scene is purposeful. I even the the fact that it's weird fantasy instead of your regular, you know, dragons and elves uh, is purposeful because uh, the idea is that I will try to breathe a lot of questions during play. 
as a game designer uh, because that gives you time. Um, yeah, placing pregnant questions in the in the table uh, gives the GM time to think ahead because while we are discussing uh, what is this, what is going on, the GM can sit back and say, okay, uh, next thing, uh, let me let me think what's going to come up next. You guys talk about <laughs> whatever you want and I'm plan ahead. Absolutely. I think to those kind of um, GMless games or what is kind of now commonly referred to as guided freeform, where you are trying to build a collaborative story together. And like the way that the designer wants you to do that is through answering specific questions. I mean, I guess Firebrands is a really good example mm. of this, but there's loads of other examples as well. And I, I mean, I don't know where this trend began, but it's it's very cool. And as you said, it does give you time and space to think about yeah. what your answer ought to be. And in that time, somebody else can, can fill it with their own ideas so yeah i i think it's it's really cool and that's a really really good way to move a game forward yeah speaking speaking about questions i have i have something i wanted to say because i don't know i think it's, it's uh, a very interesting topic uh so for noctis labyrinth i have kind of a self-imposed rule you know it's not a it's not set in stone but as a designer I try to uh, drop on the game for every game instance, like maybe a location or an encounter or character creation. I try to drop yeah. three questions. One that has an answer. The other one that has an implied answer inside the scene that you can find somewhere else. And one last question that has no answer at all. Right. So the idea will be that the one that has an answer is easy is is for gms or maybe the whole group just just go ahead and say hey what is this and the gm will be able to return with so for example i don't know oh you know what i have a better example uh when you create a fighter in noctis labyrinth you can choose between three different uh three different objects items that you can carry Right. One is your grandfather's shield, the other is an ancient helmet, and the last one is a desert demon axe, right? So desert demon axe, uh, you have a, a really quick answer for that because you will encounter desert demons, so uh, the GM will know what that is. And maybe by the time that you encounter those, uh, the table will have come around about their own ideas about what a des- desert demon is. So that's cool. Yeah. And yeah. that can run, uh, that can that run cool. parallel to, to what the scene says. And now you have two different kind of demons that are roaming about. Yeah. You have these uh, ancient helmets that you might be able to find later on the adventure of something similar. But again, by the time that you got there, what you define as a nation helmet can be completely different from what you find. And that's okay because, you know, two different things can be old. <laughs> there are more than one Asian thing, right? And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you have your grandfather's shield that is completely defined by the player because the player, if they pick that item, um, there's a reason for that, and there's a conversation there. Uh, maybe you can go like, uh, well, why you have your grandfather's shield? And they can say, well, they were defeated, and I want to take that defeat and, uh, I don't know, maybe seek glory to kind of uh, compensate for that defeat. Or maybe uh, they were a noble, and I am not I'm not a noble no longer, but that this is a symbol of the nobility that I had, or something like that. A question sure. that doesn't have yeah. an answer, and we have to come up with because it's a conversation we're having. 
It's very cool. It sort of goes back to, I, I think you touched on it when you were introducing it, but it, it kind of goes back to those really, really good guidance and instructions that Vincent and McGuire Baker give you in Apocalypse World, which is, mm-hmm. yes, a lot of it's very guided, but the, the biggest principle that came out of it is play to find out what happens. Yes. And games that encompass that and like take on it on so wholeheartedly and like give the players the agency to define the world in the way that they want to see it. That's 100% more interesting to me than, to be honest, like Pathfinder Adventure Paths or D&D 5th Edition modules, like where everything is defined and there's very little room for maneuver. Yeah. So what you're deciding on there is like such, such a good principle of how games should feel not how they should be run but how they should feel like that you have space to decide your own fate totally we already named because this is an adventure base of john harper's game but i think that one of the games that he did that are um that really hit the nail or very inspire uh notice labyrinth is not war of dungeons but uh sort of the sequel slash prequel for Blaze in the Dark, which is Ghost Lines. Right, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, you had this whole setting, the Blaze in the Dark setting that didn't exist yet, basically distilled into four pages. So you have things like Ghost Key or like Lightning Hook, which had no description at all. Because you had to come up with an answer to even play the game because that's all you had. Coming up with those, with those answers were really cool. And every table was unique. And I can picture that John had a very specific setting in his mind. Sure. Which we then found out, you know? Yeah. But he didn't spend like pages upon pages upon pages describing it. He just gave uh, gave you the the things that were useful for playing because he didn't care about you exploring his world. He cared about giving you the tools to explore a world that was different and was kind of weird. Yeah. And Noctis Labyrinth is just that. It's kind of the principle that you might find in writing of show, don't tell. Mm -hmm. You give people a framework for ideas that they can form in their own imaginations. And yeah, yeah, it's just excellent practice. (laughs) Have you heard about the term anti-canon that was going around for a couple of months? There was an OSR conversation about anti-canon and the idea that you are building the world as you play, which is a very old conversation. The, the term is new, but the conversation is old. But OSR style designs, it's usually handled with things like random tables, right? Which is uh, something that really, it's right. really cool. Deep 90 Fathoms has a lot of random tables. Uh, it's really cool. But it's this idea that out of randomness, you can build up a world by filling up the gaps. I'm trying to yeah. not do that. I have a really clear idea of what Noctis Labyrinth is in my head. And I'm trying to give you just the basics, like we just said with Ghost Lines, just the basics. And a little bit more, yeah. so you can go like, okay, what is this? Why are the desert demons staved off by pouring vinegar in the ground? Why don't they ever touch solid ground and only walk on sand? Why? I won't give you the, I have the answer for that, but I won't give it to you. You will have to find that out by playing. And I feel like it feels less random, less, oh, okay, 
we pulled out of something out of the hat and had to come up with how this came to be, which is really entertaining. But uh, it's more about, okay, this this has an explanation somewhere and we had to find it. So yeah. I'm trying to engage the sense of adventure by purposefully creating uh, a void in information. Sure. And I think that sure. that's another way to take anti-canon that doesn't necessarily feel random. It sounds brilliant. And it's exactly the kind of thing that I think so many different players will get a lot out of. And it's it also sounds like a really good resource for people who are perhaps newer to OSR, such as myself. I don't get involved a lot with the OSR movement. Yeah, I, I think it sounds like a really good launch pad for, for exploring that kind of play. So it sounds really cool. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you, you were talking about a one-shot module in there as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, do, you, do you want to tell us a little bit about what that looks like? When we were running events here in Argentina, um, we wanted to show case uh, as many games as possible so we came up with this idea of running only one hour games and you know you had one gm that was running for maybe i don't know 20 people uh during during the course of the event right yeah over that experience the one hour one shot module it's uh, very basic. It's mostly an extended encounter where you, where you have to uh, you have to interrupt a ritual that might bring out uh, you know a new age of, of fear and terror and destruction. Uh, and you're right there. You start in media rest. It's really action packed and high stakes. But it's also basic in the sense that it's quotes unquote just an encounter. But you can build upon that. You right. have bits and pieces that if you're running short on time, you can add this and you can add that. So I'm giving the, the tools to the GM to basically run a combat and go like, oh, well, but then it happened this because we are only 15 minutes into the game and it's about to, to end. So you can add this and you can add that. Or because it's it's always cool. easy, and I think that you know this out of your podcasting idea, it's only it's always easy to extend rather than uh, shorten time, right? <laughs> yes, always. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that sounds really valuable. Again, that's a that's a really good resource for maybe people who are newer to GMing. Like the barrier for one hour play, that's very low. You know, it's easy to find people who are willing to play for an hour, even if it's just to um. You know, to, to start off a session, it could be, could be a really interesting way to um, break the ice if you're playing a different game, you know, or, or mixed up a bit. Yeah. As part of a different campaign. So that's really easy and really valuable. And I, I like that idea a lot. Would you like to tell us a little bit about your Kickstarter campaigns? Sure. Uh, well, the Kickstarter campaign will start on February the 10th, if everything goes smoothly. I mean, unless something bad happens, it should be launch on the 10th it has a fairly high starting goal i'm asking for 2500 dollars because you know i'm trying to pay my collaborators uh, fairly and also i'm trying to give a very it's not necessarily long the scene itself will be 60 uh, 64 pages long so it's like kind of on the on the longer side of the scenes but not too long which means that it will have to have a lot of work sure. put inside, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, we will be doing a, a limited release of 200 physical copies. I had a really bad experience with print-on-demand, so I'm doing around this time, and that's the main reason why the starting goal is kind of high, because I have to pre-buy these 200 copies. 
the stretch goals will upgrade the PDF and the physical copy, you know, depending on the stretch goal. I will be releasing a couple supplements as stretch goals uh, to basically feed off the labyrinth itself to expand uh, for two different cities so the players can go to and from and have that downtime adventure kind of exchange. And I'm doing t-shirts. I have designed a t-shirt and I'm collaborating with Basilisk uh, to print some t-shirts as a reward. We can, we might see how that works out. You know, it was a conversation on Twitter about uh, trying to, you know, raise more money and merchandise filling that void. So this is my first time trying that out, even though it's not my first time doing T-shirts. So fun. That's uh, that will be exciting. Yeah, really exciting. I kind of take it back to like what Kickstarter's roots was like. <laughs> yeah, sure. I, I don't know. A lot of conflicts with how Kickstarter was and what Kickstarter is right now. I, and one of the reasons I have conflict is because I cannot run a Kickstarter from Argentina. Yeah, yeah. Fortunately, I have the people on Mordite Press uh, this year that are bugging me up. I have worked with them for a long time doing art for their own products. They have experience, they have fulfilled their own Kickstarters of their own and have published uh, their own supplements and games. Yeah. So I trust them a lot. I have a really close relationship with them. I'm really happy to be able to work with them. But it, it's also conflicting to know that just because I'm Latino and, and I'm running a, a campaign from Argentina, I cannot do it by myself. Mm-hmm. Which it's a thing. Yeah, it sucks. It really sucks. And like, you, you're not alone. Like, the Kickstarter only serves yeah. like 25 countries or something like that. It's sort of a bit criminal, really. At this stage, when it's being mm. used as such a big platform worldwide, it's kind of not not great. <laughs> so my heart does go out to you. It really, no, like, no, it, no. it really does. And I'm, I, you know, it sucks. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, well, I I appreciate the sentiment. I hope that this will change in the future. But you know, it's yeah, it's the world that we live in. Uh, do you want to name drop any of your other collaborators? I mean, you for sure, you will be editing. Uh, we had uh, some previews. You edited Moira for us, you know, the one that, that we did with Vika for the short That's game session yeah. number seven. You helped me out with uh, the landmark cards for Deep 90 Fathoms, which was, you know, godsend for me. I really appreciate the, the help that you gave me with that. So we had some previous collaboration and really, I don't know, I, I think that we can work well together. That's cool. I'm really yeah, excited absolutely. about that. Other than you, I'm working with someone, with, uh, someone I admire a lot. Uh, he's um, an artist and a cartographer and will be doing all the maps for the game. His name is uh, cool. Vandel Arden, which is, he's uh, a professional mapper. You might have seen some of cool. his work around. And it's amazing. The, the maps that he does are amazing. The art is too, but I will be the one doing the art for this project because it's kind of personal. But damn, the, the, the it will definitely be amazing then. Yeah, the the, the maps are great, are, are awesome. I, I'm really happy about being able to commission Vandel for for that. Yeah, Other that sounds that, cool. I'm working with Vika uh, Rusica, which is someone we both know. I'm also working with Facundo Kaper. Mm-hmm which we both know as well from the small short games digest and the San Gennaro co-op. They are also personal friends of mine. They are helping me out with promoting the campaign itself. 
Facundo is also doing nice. the video for the campaign. So that's really helping me out because I suck at promoting. I'm really bad at promotion. <laughs> so I always uh, have a hand. And like I said, Mordai Press will be doing fulfillment and backing me up with the Kickstarter. So that's basically the Fantastic. whole thing. Well, I'm thrilled for you. That sounds really fun. And yeah, like, good luck with that because it's, it's going to be really nice. Duan, do you want to tell us where we can find you or remind us where we can find you on the internet? Sure. I'm at DuanNFR, both in Twitter and Instagram. Instagram is mostly art. Twitter is mostly game stuff, some amount of me rambling. That is uh, at D-U-A-M-N-N-F-R on Twitter and Instagram. And my Ichio, where you can find Super. some of my games, I'm as Murder Hobo, which is M-R-D-R-H-O-B-O dot itch dot io. Uh, you can preview some of my approaches for adventuring in Powered by the Apocalypse games and some moves that are kind of similar in a game that I, I already published called Adventure 4. So if you're interested mm-hmm. in this scene, I want to preview a little bit of my design approach. You can check that game out. I certainly do, because it sounds really cool. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much. And I guess all that remains for me to say is thank you once again for coming on Yes Indeed Pod. And fantastically, good luck with your Kickstarter campaign. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for the space. Yes Indeed Pod is hosted and edited by Mark Shepard of Marks of High Water. You can contact the show on Twitter at yesindeedpod, that's Y-E-S-I-N-D-I-E-D-P-O-D, or support the show by leaving a rating or review, or donating through Ko-Fi at yesindeedpod. Intro and outro music is from Take a Chance, and interstitial music is from BitQuest, both by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com and filmmusic.io. Until next time, remember, does Indy need you? Yes, indeed. <laughs>